0: Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, the best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 12 today, and we are going to cover a rather large chunk of this last part of chapter 12. Um, More verses, in fact, than we normally do at one time, but hopefully it will come together, and then we can begin to take a look at the first of the parables that we encounter here in Matthew's Gospel. It's rather interesting to note that the parables are a prominent aspect of Jesus' ministry. As you know, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great preacher. He drew large crowds, and He frequently spoke in parables. And it's odd that we are halfway through the Gospel of Matthew at this point, and we are just now encountering them. So hopefully we'll get a chance to take a look at the first of Jesus' parables, talk a little bit about the parables, what they are, and their significance, and the importance of this parable, which is one of my favorites. But before we get to that and the reason for the parables, we need to take a look at these verses before us today. So Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed them, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But well, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. will never be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and evil, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We've been saying in chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew that we are studying the various responses that people gave to Jesus' claim to be the king. And we said that one of the responses that people sometimes gave to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be the king of Israel, the ruler of the kings of the earth, was doubt. That was the case, of course, with John the Baptist. He doubted in large measure because Jesus didn't seem to be measuring up to what he thought the Messiah was going to do when he came, namely administer justice. Now, we pointed out, and we've done this a couple of weeks in a row, that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is something that is common to the human condition. Unbelief is a willful refusal to acknowledge the truth or a willful refusal to believe. That was not the case with John the Baptist, and that's why Jesus, when he responded To John's question, are you the one or should we wait for another, Jesus was very tender, very compassionate, very understanding. But we said that that is at least one response that sometimes people give to Jesus' claim to be the king. And remember that in the ancient world, to be a king meant that you ruled absolutely. Uh, Kings don't run for re-election like presidents do. Some presidents may think that they're emperors or kings or whatever it may be, but the reality is Kings do not run for re-election. So they are absolute sovereigns. And some people doubt that about Jesus. The other response that we have to Jesus' claim to be the king is the response of the crowds. We said that was indifference. Initially, they were very excited about all the things that Jesus was doing, the signs and the wonders that he was performing. They were even intrigued by Jesus' ability to teach. Jesus was a very effective teacher. And he used very powerful images that attracted the people's attention. And some of the people were fascinated by that, but when they saw what the implications of the teaching really were for their lives, they began to turn away. They said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And they turned and followed him no more. That's the response of some people today to the claim that Jesus Christ is king. It's it's really a, a matter or a response of indifference. They're intrigued, they're fascinated, but they're not persuaded. Now we said as bad as those two responses are, There's still hope for people in those conditions. For those who doubt, there's always the possibility that by God's grace, if they take a good hard look at the evidence, they can move from their doubt to belief. And even for those who are indifferent, there's always the chance that something can happen. The Holy Spirit can move in their hearts in such a way that it can get them excited about the gospel. And they can become true disciples of the Lord. But we said that there was a third response to Jesus' claim to be a king, and this was the most serious one of all, and that was the response of the Jewish religious leaders. And that was not a case of doubt. that was not a case of mere indifference. It was a case of willful unbelief that, because they persisted in it, ultimately led to open hostility. And I call this the point of no return. When we finished up last week, I made reference to an event that took place during World War II called the James Doolittle Raid. Uh, Following the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, uh, American morale plummeted. Uh, Americans could not believe that a tiny island nation like Japan could be a threat to a world power like the United States. We just couldn't believe that they could take out our entire Pacific Fleet. It, It was just unfathomable. And almost immediately, President Roosevelt decided that they had to come up with a plan to somehow regain morale, somehow redeem the situation. And what was proposed was a bombing raid on Tokyo to be led by this man, uh, Colonel James Doolittle. They would take off from some carriers in the Pacific, and they would fly, and they would attack the mainland of Japan. Namely, they would attack the capital of Tokyo. Uh, It was a very courageous thing, and one of the things that made it courageous was that the bombers... And the pilots and the crew were not only going to be deep in enemy territory, but they would eventually cross what was known as the point of no return, Uh, the line of demarcation. It's that point in the flight of an aircraft where, until you reach it, you still have enough fuel to turn around and go back to your point where you started. But if you cross that line, that invisible line, as it were, you won't have enough fuel and you have no choice but to press on. And our carriers were far enough out at sea that the only way that they were going to reach Tokyo is if they crossed that point of no return. And of course that's what they did. They did bomb the mainland of Japan. They did hit Tokyo. It was a very courageous act, but many of them uh, were captured. Some were killed. Many of them were taken prisoners for the duration of the war. Some escaped, flew on to China and escaped. Uh, One of those was the commander of this, Colonel Doolittle. He received the Medal of Honor and was promoted to general for the feat. What was so courageous about it was their willingness to cross that line of demarcation, that point of no return. For them, it was a good thing. But in the case of the Pharisees, crossing the point of no return in terms of their relationship with Jesus Christ and his claims to be a king was a very dangerous thing indeed. A very, very dangerous thing indeed. I want you to understand that there is such a point. In the life of every individual, there is a point where if we do not get serious about Jesus Christ, we cross the point where we can no longer return. Now we think to ourselves, well, surely there's always hope. Well, let me show you why most of the time there is hope, but there comes a point where for all of us there is no hope if we have not made the right decision. We have a very powerful illustration of this, a real-life example of this, in the life of Judas Iscariot. So keep your finger here in Matthew's Gospel and flip to the end of John's Gospel. Well, toward the end of John's Gospel. I say toward the end of John's Gospel, it's really the end of Jesus' ministry. This is gonna come as a shock to some of you, but fully one half of the Gospel of John, fully one half is given over to just the last week of Jesus' life. Did you know that? Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years approximately He ministered for three of those years, was active, going about teaching, preaching, healing, and so forth. And you would have thought that the Gospels would have covered a lot of that territory. And yet half of the Gospel of John is given over to just the last seven days of Jesus' life. Which goes to show us where the real focus of the good news of Jesus, His life and ministry, really is. It's in the cross and in the empty tomb. Well, at any rate, John chapter 3 records the story of the Last Supper. Uh, jesus final passover meal with his disciples and i want you to look at chapter 13 and the verses that follow beginning at verse 1 now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world into the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him so in other words the idea had been planted in his mind. It had already been planted in Judas's mind. He was tempted. But I want you to understand something. The sin is not in the temptation. You understand that? Well, we, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are all going to fall prey to temptation from time to time. But the sin is not in the temptation. The sin is in succumbing to the temptation. Billy Graham put it best. He, he said these lines back in the 1960s, you know, when ladies had those big bouffon hairdos, remember those? You know, how many of you remember, ladies remember those big hairdos, you know? He said, temptation is like birds. He said, y- you may not be able to stop a bird from flying into your hair, <laughs> but you can stop it from nesting there. Well, the same thing is true with temptation. Temptation will come from time to time, and we can't do anything about that. But you can stop the temptation from taking nest, from taking root in your life. So here what we have is a case where Judas Iscariot had been tempted. The devil had planted the idea in his mind, in his heart, to betray Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God, was going back to God, rose from the supper, He laid out His outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around His waist. And you know the story. What happened there? What happened was that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gave them the example of one who would be a servant. And He said, anyone who would be first in my kingdom must be a servant of all. He set them an example. And then look at verse 21. Skip ahead. And after saying these things... Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I've always wondered what was going through Simon Peter's head at that point. I think Simon Peter knew himself. I think the reason why he asked John to ask Jesus who it was is because I think Simon Peter was afraid it was him. I think we all deserve that kind of self appraisal every now and then. It would be good for us to ask ourselves, Am I really any better than anybody else but for the grace of God? So Simon Peter says to John, Ask him, who is it? Who's he talking about? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, look at this, Satan entered him. Now, Up to that point, Satan hadn't entered him. Satan had planted an idea in his mind, but what happened there? What happened there was that Judas crossed the point of no return. When he took that morsel from Jesus, we're told Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at that table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give him something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And the section ends, and it was night. It was night, but that's not why John mentions it. Everybody knew when you had to eat the Passover meal. So he knew that it was physically night. But it was not just physically night. A spiritual darkness had descended upon that company, and a spiritual darkness had descended upon Judas Iscariot. He had crossed the point of no return. So I want you to understand it can happen. And we need to be serious about these spiritual matters. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, Have I crossed the point of no return? Well, if you're alive right now, you haven't crossed the point of no return. And you're saying, Well, shoo, that's great. But you don't know when you will. Nobody knows when God's going to call them. Nobody knows when their number is up. Have you seen the statistics lately? Have you? Have have you seen the statistics on the mortality rate? You know, the obesity rate keeps changing, but I have been watching the mortality rates, and it's really interesting to note that the mortality rates over the course of the past thousand years or so have remained the same, 100%. Now, some of us go young, some of us go old, some of us go when we're expecting it, some of us go unexpectedly, but I got news for you, we're all going. That's the point. None of us should be surprised by death. Now, we may be shocked when a young person dies suddenly, unexpectedly. But you would think that by now we would realize that death is something we're all going to have to grapple with sooner or later. So sooner or later, it's coming to you, and none of us knows when that is. We like to plan our lives out thinking we know when things are going to happen, but the reality is we don't. And if God were to call you home and you have not made a serious decision for Jesus Christ, you have crossed the point of no return. It's as simple as that. And that was the case for these scribes and these Pharisees. They crossed the point of no return. Of no return. Of course, the thing that brought all of this on was Jesus and the Sabbath. We said that Jesus was performing great feats on the Sabbath, and that was a great issue for the scribes and the Pharisees. The reality was they didn't really care about Jesus violating the, the, the Sabbath. Their, their real concern was that they were jealous of Jesus. And this whole Sabbath issue was just one way of getting at him. They were intensely jealous of Jesus because he was able to do all of these miracles that they were not able to do. Furthermore, when Jesus taught, he taught as one having authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. There was something about Jesus that they didn't have, and no matter how hard they tried, they could not get it. And instead of going to him and him being willing to give it to them, they simply became jealous, enraged, and they wanted nothing more than to be rid of him. Well, go back now to Matthew, and let's take a look again at the circumstances now that lead them to the point of no return. It is a Sabbath issue, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that he spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and asked, can this be the son of David? Well, you see a miracle like that, that's a logical question to ask, isn't it? Can this be the one? I mean, my goodness. Everybody knew that when the Messiah came, he was going to open the eyes of the blind. The lame were going to leap for joy. Lepers were going to be cleansed. The dead were going to be raised. So it was a natural question. Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, what did they say? I don't know. We need to take a look at this. Did they doubt? We need to take a closer look at this. Were they indifferent? No. They were hostile their response is, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, it's only by Satan that he casts out demons. It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. I don't know who it was that invented the idea of the big lie. I don't know what politician it was or what emperor it was, but the idea of the big lie has been around for a very long time. You know what the big lie is? The idea behind the big lie is that if you tell something or say something long enough and fervently enough, even if it's not true, eventually people begin to believe it. Now, how many of you are familiar with the big lie? We see it all the time, don't we? If you say something long enough and fervently enough, even if it's not true, eventually people begin to believe it. A great example of the big lie in the ancient world is Nero. Nero blamed the Christians for the destruction of Rome. The reality was the Christians didn't have anything to do with the burning of Rome. But many of the people were angry, and they began to to blame Nero. They began to say, crazy old Nero, he's the one who's responsible. And so what did he do? He made up a lie. He said, oh, I'm not responsible for it. There's only one section of the city that has not been touched by this great conflagration, and we know who's responsible for it. It's those people called the Christians. And he said it long enough and fervently enough that people began to believe him. And you had the first persecution, really, on a large scale in the history of the church. Or you think of Adolf Hitler in those years between the First and the Second World Wars. Germany was in a very bad place economically, and people were blaming the government. And the government, particularly the Nazis, began to argue, oh, no, 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 we're not responsible for this. I can tell you who's responsible for it. The Jews are responsible for it. And they began to tell that big lie, and they told it long enough and fervently enough until what? The people, the masses, began to believe it. And the result was the Second World War and the Holocaust. Well, that's what the Pharisees do here with Jesus. They tell the big lie. And they say it long enough and fervently enough that they think that the people are going to begin to believe it. Oh, yes, he does these miracles. It's interesting to note, they don't deny the fact that Jesus does a miracle. Isn't that curious? They don't deny the fact that the Lord is performing miracles. They can't deny it because they're so powerful, so obvious. So what do you do with that? You tell the big lie. The way that he's doing it, the cause of these miracles is the fact that he is a demon himself. That's what they told the people. See, that's how you know they've crossed the point of no return. They're calling good evil, and they're calling evil good. And when you reach that point and you're persuaded of that, what hope is there for you? What hope is there for a society that reaches that point? That's the question. Well, how does Jesus respond to this serious accusation? How does He respond to the big lie? I think it's really interesting. Jesus responds in what I consider to be a very rational way. Verse 25, Knowing their thoughts, He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's how Jesus responds to this accusation that He is casting out demons because He has, or is, a demon. First of all, Jesus says it can't be true. It can't be true because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Everybody knows that. You, you, you can't fight a two-front war. Well, That's why Germany lost both world wars. They were fighting on two fronts. Jesus is saying, look, if Satan is casting out Satan, his kingdom is divided. His kingdom cannot stand. He said, so if it's not Satan casting out, because his kingdom wouldn't be able to stand, then the only other alternative is that Satan is being cast out. These demons are being cast out how? By the power of God. God is the only other option you see in a universe like that. Either Satan's doing it or God is doing it. If Satan can't do, be doing it because his kingdom would be divided against itself and his kingdom would fall, then it has to be by God. And if God is doing it, then that means that the kingdom of God has arrived. And if the kingdom of God has come, and I'm the one that's casting out the demons, and I'm not of Satan, then that means that I must be the what? What? The king. Now that's Jesus' response to their accusation. And as I said, it is a very rational, a very ordered response. And you would think, well, what's, what's, what's their reaction going to be to this? The reality is they don't have anything to say. It's such a well and tightly ordered argument that Jesus makes that, unfortunately, the Jewish religious leaders have absolutely nothing to say. This reminds us that before the point of no return, there's always a point of decision. There comes in every life a point of decision where we have to take a good hard look at the evidence and we have to make a decision for ourselves. Either we will look at the evidence and we will be persuaded or we will not be persuaded, or we will do the truly foolish thing and refuse to even look at the evidence. But one way or the other, you're making a decision. So before the point of no return, there is a point of decision. As Josh McDowell once said in the title of a book, there is evidence that demands a verdict. One thing is very clear, you cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 30 after he gives this very rational response to this accusation. He said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You cannot be neutral. There's no Switzerland in the Christian life. You're either for Him or you're against Him. Keep your finger there in Matthew and skip to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. This is one of the seven letters to the seven churches. If you want to look at this in detail, you're going to have to come to the Sunday school class on the Lord's Day, where we'll take a closer look at this. But... We read these words, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Go ahead to verse 15. This is to the church in Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, to the church in Sardis, there is this call to a point of decision. Your works are dying. You need to rekindle them. Here's here's your moment. To the church in Laodicea, they've crossed the point of no return. He said, I know you are neither hot nor cold, and because you are lukewarm, I will what? I will spew you out of my mouth. That's the picture. So we have to remember that God is gracious and He is merciful, but He is also the judge. There will come a time when we will be called to account. You're either for Him or you're against Him. Deciding against Jesus is clearly dangerous. How do you know if somebody has decided for Jesus or they have decided against him? Jesus makes it very clear, it's dangerous. If you decide against him, every sin will be forgiven except for one, what? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is to say, if you are convinced in your heart and in your mind that Jesus really is the king, but you don't give your life over to him, instead you turn away from him as the scribes and the Pharisees did, and you call that which is evil good and that which is good evil, he said, then that is an unforgivable sin. What hope is there for you? You've rejected the gospel. You've crossed the point of no return. How do you know? Well, Jesus tells us He says, by their fruit you'll know them. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. This brings up the whole subject of works in the life of the individual believer. Now Paul makes it very clear, and I want to walk you through this, because there's been a great debate about this sometimes in the history of the church, and people have a tendency to go off the rail either one way or the other. So turn, if you will, keep your finger in Matthew or put a marker in Matthew, and turn to Ephesians, because I want you to see something here. This is one of the most, I consider, one of the most important sections in the entire Bible. Ephesians is one of my favorite books, and one of the reasons it's one of my favorite books is because it's relatively short, and yet it is jam-packed with good theology. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, Paul writes, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast." This was one of the great passages that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. One of the complaints that people like Luther and Melanchthon and Calvin and Bootser and the great reformers of the 16th century had against the medieval church was that the medieval church, they said, was teaching a false doctrine of salvation. The medieval church was saying that if you want to get into heaven, you have to do it the old-fashioned way. What's the old-fashioned way? You've got to earn it. Remember that old line? They do it the old-fashioned way. They earned it, John Hausman. That's the idea, you see. That's what many people think. Well, if you're going to get into heaven, you have to earn it. And the reformer said that's simply not true. All our good works would never be enough to attain the righteousness of God. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? If you want to do it your own way, if you want to receive the glory on the day of salvation, if you want to do it, as Frank Sinatra said, my way. Here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. How good do you have to be? 70%? 80%? 90 What's a passing grade? Does God grade on the curve? I'm going to tell you exactly how good you have to be if you want to earn your way into heaven. Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So it's not enough to be as good as the clergy. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee you're not going anywhere if you're that good. How good do you have to be? You have to be as good as God. Well, you've already flunked because none of us is as good as God. Even if you were able to live a perfect life from here on out, what about all of your past misdeeds and failures and inadequacies? Jesus says, if you want to get into heaven by your own merit, you have to be as good as God from start to finish, from stem to stern. That's how good you have to be. And that's why Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace. What is grace? God's undeserved, unearned favor. It is received, how? By faith. He said, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Now, how many people want to say hallelujah to that? But does that mean that that means there's no place for good works in the life of the Christian? That's what some people have argued. There's no place. As long as you believe in Jesus Christ, you can live like hell. But that's not the biblical understanding either. I like to point out to people that they love to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. and Indeed, you should, but you need to go on to read the verses that follow. So let's just take a look at them again. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a place for good works in the Christian life. They are not the means to salvation, but Paul is very clear they are the evidence of salvation. They are the fruit of salvation. And I love the fact that he describes them as fruit. I love the fact that Jesus describes it as fruit. Jesus says a healthy tree is going to bear what? Healthy fruit. <laughs> and an unhealthy tree, what's it going to do? It's not going to produce healthy fruit. Therefore, you know the tree by its fruit fruit you don't get into the kingdom of God as a result of your works but if you're in the kingdom of God what God is doing is he's producing works in you we call it the fruit of the Spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control that's the fruit of the Spirit And that's the evidence of salvation. So if you're sitting out there today and you're saying to yourself, well, I really don't know if I am saved. I don't know if I I really am in a saving relationship with the Lord. If he were to call me home today, if the point of decision is passed and the point of no return comes and I am called home, would I really be in the kingdom of God? One of the ways that you can know for certain is, is there fruit in your life? Now, I want you to understand we describe it as spiritual fruit. I'm not talking about good works in the eyes of the world. You know, people say, well, I'm I'm good compared to the world. God's not interested in that. God is interested in whether you have the fruit of the Spirit. That's the evidence of salvation. Love. What kind of love? Well, not just I tolerate my neighbor, but I really wish that his house would burn down (laughs) or his dog would die. Love is agape love. It's the highest form of love. It's the love that Jesus had on the cross. It's the love that loves enough to die. It's the love that puts your neighbor first and yourself second. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, the kind of love that Christ had for us, the love of the unlovable. Joy, not happiness. Happiness is something that's contingent upon your circumstances. You win the lottery, you're happy. Joy is something that transcends your circumstances. Peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. Did you notice that many people long for peace in their lives? I think that's probably the thing that we yearn for more than anything else. True contentment, that's what we're all searching for. Now, you can call it any number of things. You can call it salvation, whatever it is. But what we're really looking for is that peace which passes human understanding, that regardless of your circumstances, you are perfectly content. Who would like to have that? Well, here's the problem. You can never have the peace of God until you first have peace with God. There is a reason, ladies and gentlemen, why the order of the service in our liturgy is the way it is you ever notice that we confess our sins and receive absolution? And immediately following the confession of sins, we have what? We have the passing of the peace. And once we have the passing of the peace, then we go together to the Lord's table. Until you have peace with God, you can't have the peace of God. And until you have the peace of God, you cannot have peace with each other. These are the things that are the fruit of the Spirit, my friends. Not just good works the way the world looks at them. And Jesus said, this is the true evidence, this is the true proof of salvation. Now at this point we can look at the Pharisees and the scribes and shake our heads in disbelief and say, oh, what terrible wretches they were. To say these things about Jesus, the way they did, to say that He who was doing all these great works, my goodness, the fruit of the Spirit was in Him in an abundance And yet, what did they say? They said that he was a demon. What careless words. And if Jesus had just stopped there, boy, let me tell you, I'd feel a whole lot better about myself. But he doesn't stop there. Look at how the section ends. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account... For every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are words, my friends, not just to the scribes and the Pharisees, those are words to us. We'll be judged by our careless words. How many of you have ever spoken a careless word? See, that's why we need a Savior, isn't it? That's why we need a Redeemer. Because when all is said and done, we're just as bad as those scribes and the Pharisees. The only question is, when we reach the point of decision, will we turn to Jesus Christ and beg for His grace and His mercy and invite Him in, or will we turn against Him and go our own way and cross that point of no return? Well, I think any number of things can be careless words. I mean, some of this is not um, difficult. For example, I'm taking the Lord's name in vain as a careless word, strictly condemned in the Ten Commandments. Anybody ever done it? Don't raise your hand. Um, Saying something nasty about your neighbor. And who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus said, everyone's your neighbor my goodness, I'm condemned already. So any kind of careless word that is anything but loving. So there is a place for good works in the Christian life. Now you would have thought that after that point, the scribes and the Pharisees would have immediately repented in sackcloth and ashes, but it wasn't the case. As I said, they had already crossed the point of no return, If nothing else, they were persistent. They were not persuaded, but they were persistent in their opposition. And that's why in the verses that close out this chapter, the next thing they do is they said, all right, we'll believe you, but give us a sign. I want a sign, they said. Give us a sign to prove that you really are who you are. You know, if you think about it, that was the most arrogant thing they could have said. That's how you know they crossed the point of no return. What had Jesus been doing up to this point but giving them signs? See, that is the proof that no matter how much evidence you give, it will never be enough to persuade. This demand for a sign is nothing more than an excuse to stand in opposition to Jesus Christ. And that's the way it is with many people today. Oh, give me a little more evidence in order to believe. Well, what does Jesus say in response to that demand for more evidence? He says this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus had been giving them signs all along. He said, even if I were to give you another sign, you still would not believe. He said, I'll give you one more sign. You want a sign, I'll give it to you. It's the sign of Jonah. Now, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. God called him to go and preach to this wicked city, Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like the Ninevites. He thought if God brought down judgment upon them, rained down hail upon them and cinders and fire, that, that was fine with him. He hated the Ninevites. But God decided to have mercy on the city of Nineveh, and he said, Jonah, you're going to go there. Jonah instead got on a ship and went the opposite direction. Now, you know the story. He got caught in this great storm. When everybody found out that he was responsible for the storm, what did they do? They threw him overboard. And he got swallowed up by this great fish, and for three days and three nights, he sat in the belly of this great fish, thinking about what he had done and thinking to himself, well, doggone it, I probably should have just done what God told me to do. And he repents... And the whale or the fish or whatever it was spit him out. You know the story? Where did he land? Nineveh. (laughs) He didn't get away anyway. It's a reminder to us that you go the opposite direction, there's always going to be consequences, my friends. It's just better to follow along where God is commanding you to go. Well, Jesus said, well, what happened to Jonah is going to happen to the Son of Man. He's going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. But on the third day, he's going to come forth. And that is the greatest sign of all. And he said, even though it's the greatest sign of all, still men will not believe, even if he comes back from the dead. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking to yourself, oh, no, if I had been there and I saw him come out of the tomb, I'd believe. You ever say that to yourself? If I could just see God perform some great miracle like the parting of the Red Sea, I would believe. You ever thought that? That's just what I need. I need a sign. Lord, give me a sign. Give me me something from heaven that can prove that you are who you are. Then I will believe. Jesus calls that a wicked and adulterous generation to demand a sign. Why? Because signs have already been given. It reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis once said in his book, Miracles. It'll probably be Brian's next study after the screw tape letters. I don't know, but I'm throwing it out there. Lewis said this. He said, In all my life, I have met only one person who claims to have seen a ghost. He said, And the interesting thing about the story is that that person disbelieved in the immortal soul before she saw the ghost and still believes in the immortal soul and still disbelieves after seeing it. She says that what she saw must have been an illusion or a trick of the nerves, and obviously she may be right. For seeing is not believing. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we shall always say. It is therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled, as well as we can, the philosophical question. Translate. Translate. Lewis is saying, if you are absolutely already convinced that miracles can occur, even if you were to witness one, you wouldn't believe. Even if you were to see the Red Sea parted, you would still say to yourself, well, there must be a natural explanation for that. Even if you were to see somebody come back from the dead, you will say to yourself, it must have been an illusion. It must have been something that I ate the night before. Do you remember Scrooge? When he saw Marley's ghost, what did he say? A rotten potato, which didn't make Marley happy, by the way. But that was the idea. He said, I will not believe. Lewis saying if you have already made up in your mind not to believe, even if you were to witness a miracle, you still would not be persuaded. And that's what Jesus is saying about the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm going to give you one more sign, the greatest sign of all, the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be betrayed at the hands of my own people. I'm going to be crucified publicly. I'm going to be laid in the belly of the earth. Three days later, I'm going to come forth. That's the greatest sign of all, and still you're not going to believe. Because you've already made up in your mind that it cannot be. Well, how about you? You know, actually, we have greater evidence today to believe in God and to believe in the resurrection than the people in the first century. The very fact that the church is here today, my friends, is one of the greatest evidences for Christianity and for the proof of Jesus' resurrection, bodily, physical resurrection from the dead. I mean, Christianity did not start out among the powerful and the elite Christianity started out among the dregs of society, the poor, the uneducated, the unimportant. Paul says this, he said, many of you were not wise, many of you were not educated, not many of you were of great stature, but God took the things that are not to shame the things that are. Christianity started out among the poorest people in the world, and within 300 years, This movement, without firing a shot, without violence, by the preaching of the gospel, and by people willing to suffer for what they believe in, and if necessary, die for what they believed in, they brought the greatest empire the world had ever known to its knees. And you have to ask yourself who but God could do that? And still, people do not believe. Their hearts become hardened, you see. That was the case with the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me ask you the question, where are you right now? If you're within the sound of my voice, you are at the point of decision. You have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. You you can, you should not put it off. Either he is who he claimed to be, or you are saying, I don't care, I'm indifferent to him, in which case you've already made up your mind, or you're hostile to him. Now, I'm assuming that because you're here today, you are not hostile. But it may mean that you have been indifferent to Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you. He wants your life. He wants to give you that peace which passes human understanding. But in order to have the peace of God, you've got to have peace with God. You need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You need to come to Him and ask Him to forgive you and come in and be your Savior. But there's one more part to this. He needs to be the Lord of your life. The whole point of the Gospel of Matthew up to this point is that Jesus who came to be the Savior is also the what? The King. And so the question that has to be asked is, who is sitting as sovereign on the seat or the heart of your life? Who's really in charge? Are you doing it your way? Or are you doing it His way? Well, you say, well, he's, he's Lord of part of my life. It's been said that if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. And that's true for you, and that's true for me. Let me pause there and ask any questions, if there are any questions, because there's I'm ready to move on to the parable of the sower, but I'm afraid I'm not going to get through in eight minutes with the parable of the sower. I don't even have that much faith, so Mara. It's very interesting that Jesus says that in those days, the citizens of Nineveh will rise up in judgment. Because even though they were wicked people, I mean, Jonah was right. The reason he didn't want to go to the Ninevites is because they were terrible people. (laughs) They were really wicked people. And, And we all want to see the wicked get their just desserts, don't we? Now, let's be honest. You want to know that somebody like Hitler or Stalin is going to get their comeuppance. And that's how he felt about the Ninevites. The problem was, when he went and he preached to the Ninevites, they repented. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they didn't. So the Ninevites were better off than the scribes and the Pharisees, as terrible and as wicked and as heinous as they were. And the scribes and the Pharisees in the minds of the, the people were upright and moral individuals. That's the difference, you see. That's the difference. Okay. Yes, and then I'll go back to Jane. Go ahead. I just U.S. Won on two fronts in World War II. We had a little bit of help. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it's a point of history. He said the U.S. won on two fronts in, in World War II. We were in the Pacific and we were in the Atlantic. That is true. The reality is we were allies. My point is that Germany was against the world, and Germany fought two wars on two fronts and lost both wars as a consequence. I think that's the historical view. But I'll defer to your judgment on that. I'll defer to it. Jane. So I was curious about, so when you said the Pharisees were at the point of no return, but, but they hadn't died yet, I mean, they still had a chance where they could have repented. Right. The, the reason why Jesus brings up this whole subject of the unforgivable sin at this point, and when we say the scribes and the Pharisees, we're talking collectively here, I think we have to say. We can't say that each and every individual. But the example that I used a couple of weeks ago was the example of Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, you'll recall that in John chapter 3. And he comes to Jesus and what he says, now John goes to great lengths to say, number one, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That he was a member of the ruling council, that is the Sanhedrin, which was the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. You know, we have a division within our government, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. They didn't have that in Judaism. All that power was vested in the Sanhedrin, and they called the shots for every Jew everywhere in the world, not just in Palestine, but everywhere in the world. So the point that John is making is Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a very important person. And he lays that foundation before he ever tells us the first thing that Nicodemus says to Jesus when he meets him. And the first thing he says is this, we know that you are a man who has come from God for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. Now, who's the we? Well, based upon what John has just said, Nicodemus is speaking for the Pharisees as a whole. We know that you're a man who has come from God because no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. We know it's from God and yet they still, in spite of the fact that it was from God, did what? Conspired for the rest of Jesus' public ministry to have him destroyed until ultimately they called for his blood. And when he was brought before Pontius Pilate and Pontius said, I find no fault with him, the response that the scribes and the Pharisees gave was this, he claims to be a king and we, who hated Caesar, have no king but Caesar. That's the point of no return. That's the point. It may very well be that Nicodemus as an individual had repented because he shows up again after Je- at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. He gets the body with uh, Joseph of Arimathea. So it may be that Nicodemus was, was changed or at least felt guilt in his heart for what had happened, an innocent man being condemned. But the point, I think, is that when you get to the point where you are calling evil good and good evil and you know in your heart that this is not right, You're convicted in your heart, and yet you still willfully go in the opposite direction. What hope is there for you? That's what Jesus is saying. it's a very, very bad place to be, and I think it's where our culture is right now. It's where our culture is right now. It's what we're dealing with. If you don't believe me, Romans chapter 1, I I intended to bring up Romans chapter 1. I'm not sure I have the time to do it. Um, I've only got about three minutes, and it's a huge subject. Go ahead and do it. Oh, all right. you, you, you give me five minutes of grace? Oh, five minutes, okay, well, go off on your own, maybe on your own head, um, just kidding, Romans chapter 1, let's just go ahead and look at this, I am, I'm moping a can of worms here at the very end, and I want to say something about this, because this raises the whole subject of sexuality, and I know that this is a hot topic in our culture. Um, And I want to say right off the bat that there is people who struggle with their sexuality or engage in sexual behaviors that the Bible says are unacceptable are no worse sinners than anybody else. I want to say that right off the bat. Second thing I want to say is this. The problem is not in the proclivity. The problem is in the behavior. All right? Now, don't kill the messenger. That's what people want to do. Just listen to the message. Now, here is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Now, people say, well, I know what Paul said, but who cares what Paul said? What did Jesus say? Let me tell you something. Jesus held to the same standard. Jesus never addressed issues of human sexuality, particularly things like homosexual behavior and so forth. And do you know why he never addressed those within a Jewish context? Because they weren't questioned in a Jewish context. Jesus worked among the Jews, and the Jews condemned that kind of behavior outright. In fact, it was punishable by death. It was a capital crime. And what is interesting is that Jesus never said, oh, no, no, that's wrong. He actually upheld the Jewish standard. Paul deals with these issues specifically. Why? Because Paul is operating within a Greco-Roman context, and these were issues that were rampant in a Greco-Roman culture. So that's why Paul deals with them in a way that Jesus doesn't. But that doesn't mean that Jesus disagrees with Paul. He actually took a very high standard, a very strict standard on these matters. But what I want you to look at is Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, and we're going to read it through to the end, and I want you to follow the logic of Paul's argument. Paul's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law, so it's a very rational argument, and one argument builds upon the other. He says, "...for the wrath of God..." is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the first thing Paul says that I want you to understand. God's wrath is coming down upon a sinful humanity because people are not ignorant of the truth. He says they do what? They suppress the truth. That is to say they know the truth, but they suppress it. And he goes on to say this. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's Paul's argument. God's judgment is coming upon sinful humanity because God has made himself known in the created order, in the things that have been made. God's signature is written across the creation. But men did not want to acknowledge God. Instead, they suppressed the truth and they did what? they decided to worship created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Isn't that our culture? Don't we worship created things? Don't those things come as a higher priority than God himself? You better believe it. What's the consequence of that kind of behavior? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up. The language here is actually the language of a prisoner exchange. God gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And here's what happens. When God gives them up, when you reach that point of no return, you fail to acknowledge God and His his kingship, His sovereignty over the world. When you, when you fail to do that, what does he do? He eventually says, all right, you don't want to do it my way, have it your way. He gave them up. That's what the text says. He, he gave them up, and so when he gave them up, they started on this downhill spiral. Listen, folks, when you start on that downhill spiral, start doing things your own way. There's no bottom. That's Paul's point in the rest of the chapter. covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They are insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them." Now tell me, is that not a picture of 21st century American society today? And we not only practice those things, we applaud those who practice those things. We take pride in them. What a dangerous place to be, you see, as a culture. What a terribly dangerous place to be. And yet from the arms of the cross, Jesus cries out, Come unto me. There's still time to repent. There's still time to come back to the Lord. There's still time to find forgiveness and pardon. For there is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would take to heart these words that Jesus speaks to the scribes and to the Pharisees. We recognize that this is a picture of our culture and we are contributors to it. We would like to say that the problem is out there, it's other people, but the reality is we are guilty of every careless word we speak. The culture is in the place where it is, not simply because people who are not Christians have acted in a certain way. The world is often in the way that it is because Christians have failed to act in a way that they should. So, Father, we come before you and we ask for forgiveness. We beg for your mercy. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ over our lives. And we pray that we may be the kind of people who live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for us,